What up, Mexican-American lit class, Mexican-American literarians, Mexican-American litukians. Uh, this is Professor Daniel Pena. We're continuing class online. If you don't know why I'm playing this theme music, uh, it is a theme music to Coast to Coast AM, which is an Oogie Boogie radio show from the 90s, much of which is interrogated in Natalie Diaz's post-colonial love poem, thought it would be kind of cool to uh to open up to that come to think of it i thought it'd be kind of cool to open up to a lot of sort of thematic music it's one of the perks of teaching online now um but we'll get to that in a second first off how are you guys doing how's stuff you guys hanging in there you guys got enough toilet paper you guys got enough uh um flour and yeast i checked the price of yeast the other day and it was uh 134 dollars 134 dollars for a five dollar jar of yeast fucking crazy anyway the world's burning stock market's crashing there's no toilet paper I think of like all of the actual valuable things in my house and I think of like my drum set uh, maybe some guitars and now like a two-pound bag of yeast is worth more than all of those. It's crazy. It's very humbling. <laughs> Anyways, um, just checking in on you guys. I know it's a kind of an intense time, and nobody really asked for this. I mean, to this end, we're going to try our best to get through this together. I know it's not um, ideal. I know it's kind of crazy. Um... I know the university had its first uh, COVID-19 case, uh, which is bananas, and I'm sending my good energy and thoughts out to that person, uh, who I, I don't know who it is, um, but uh, someone who works uh, at UHD. Uh, I know they sort of agonized over the decision to shut the university down, and so um, we're going to try our best in this space. We're going to try our best to get into class mode, to try to sort of recreate or replicate what we were doing in class online. Um, I think we can do it, man. I think we can, I think I'm, I'm excited for the challenge. Uh, I'm excited that we can still maintain some kind of like, I don't know, um, path forward in this medium. Uh, for what it's worth, I do believe in radio quite a bit. Um, I'm a little bit of an audiophile and I, I believe in, uh, I believe in audio. I believe in sort of like the interactive online classroom. I believe in asynchronous learning, which is what we're doing right now. Basically, I upload something into Blackboard and what's going to happen is you're going to be able to sort of download it and, um, play it at your leisure, right? You don't have to show up to class and fight traffic, uh, to get there at 10 AM anymore. Though a lot of you did, and I really appreciated that, um, First thing I just want to say is, uh, you know, um, we're plowing forward with post-colonial love poem uh, by Natalie Diaz, and then we're going to finish off the semester with uh, Nelly Campobello's uh, Cartucho, right, which is a is a novel about the Mexican, uh, Amer I should say Mexican-American, Mexican Revolution, rather. Um, if you haven't got a hold of that copy of that book yet, you should maybe do that. I know Brazos Bookstore in town is still delivering. Uh, the showroom is closed, so that's kind of a bummer. Uh, but for everyone's safety, um, they just closed the shop. But I know you can sort of order it online, and they can either mail it to you or you can go and pick it up. So cool. So today I want to look at 
four poems, uh, five poems rather, from Natalie Diaz's Postcolonial Love Poem. Uh, we're going to look at the title poem, the Postcolonial Love Poem, and then we're going to look at Bloodlight and Catching Copper, uh, American Arithmetic, and then They Don't Love You Like I Love You, that nice homage to the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah song, uh, They Don't Love You Like I Love You. Natalie Diaz is kind of cool. Uh, she's one of my favorite poets. Uh, was born in Fort Mojave Indian Village in Needles, California. She is Mojave and an enrolled member of the Gila River Indian community. She earned a BA from Old Dominion University where she received a full athletic scholarship. Diaz played professional basketball in Europe and Asia before returning to Old Dominion to earn an MFA. She's the author of the poetry collection When My Brother Was an Aztec, uh, which was published in 2012, uh, which New York Times reviewer Eric McHenry described as, quote, an ambitious, beautiful book. Her honors and awards include the Nimrod Hardman Pablo Neruda Prize for Poetry, the Lewis Untermeyer Scholarship in Poetry from Breadloaf, the Narrative Poetry Prize, and a Lannan Fellowship. Uh, Diaz lives in Mojave Valley, Arizona, where she has worked with the last speakers of Mojave and directed a language revitalization program. In a PBS interview, she spoke of the connection between writing and experience. Quote, For me, writing is a kind of way for me to explore why I want things, and why I'm afraid of things, and why I worry about things. And for me, all of those things represent a kind of hunger that draw, that comes with being raised in a place like this. So naturally, a lot of her work interrogates reservations, interrogates identity, interrogates uh, family and the residence of, resonance of family and the personal and the way in which the personal manifests in this sort of larger political uh, dialogue. Um, I like this book also because it sort of talks about uh, Mexican-Americanness in the context of indigeneity, which we haven't really talked about just yet. Um, but it is true that we are part indigenous, you know, a lot of us are mestizos, you know, that was sort of going back to the Chicano movement. So much of the Chicano movement was uh, born out of this, um, this, uh, um, this identity of sort of like indigeneity, right? And so I want to just sort of without further ado, just dive into the title poem, uh, post-colonial love poem, uh, which is right there on the first page, page one. And we'll just go ahead and read it. Postcolonial love poem. I've been taught bloodstones can cure a snake bite, can stop the bleeding. Most people forget this when the war ended. The war ended, depending on which war you mean. Those we started before those millennia ago and onward. Those which started me, which I lost and won. Those ever-blooming bloom wounds. I was built by wage, so I waged love and worse, always another campaign to march across, a desert night for the cannon flash of your pale skin settling in a silver lagoon of smoke at your breast. I dismount my dark horse, bend to you there, deliver you the hard pull of my thirsts. I learned drink in a country of drought. We pleasure to hurt, leave marks, the size of stones, each a cobachon, polished by our mouths. I, your lapidary, your lapidary wheel, turning, green mottled red, the jaspers of our desires. There are wildflowers in my desert, which take up to twenty years to bloom. The seeds sleep like geodes beneath hot feldspar sand until a flash flood bolts the arroyo, lifting them in its copper current, opens them with memory. 
They remember what their God whispered into the ribs. Wake up and ache for your life. When your hands have been when your hands have been our diamonds on my shoulder, down my back, thighs, I am your culebra. I am the dirt for you. Your hips are quartz, light and dangerous. Two rose-horned rams ascending a soft desert wash before the November sky untethers a hundred-year flood. The desert returns suddenly to its ancient sea. Arise the wild heliotrope, scorpion weed. Blue phacelia, which holds purple the way a throat can hold the shape of any great hand. Great hands is what she called mine. The rain will eventually come, or not. Until then, we touch our bodies like wounds. The war never ended and somehow begins again. I love so much of the imagery of this poem. I'm going to talk about what it means in just a second. Um, but it is interesting because, you know, so much of Marcelo's book, uh, Children of the Land, which we still got to discuss, actually. I might open up a discussion thread on that uh, soon. Um, but so much of this... Of this um, poem really interrogates the landscape and interrogates the ways in which the brown body is indigenous to the American landscape, um, but also sort of has echoes of history within it, uh, echoes within the interpersonal, but also in the way in which the body moves through the land. I'll talk about that in just a second. But on a literal level, I want you to think about sort of like what this poem means. Like, what does it mean? Post-colonial love poem. And I think for for us, the best way in which we can sort of start uh, interrogating this poem is actually looking at what is the definition of post-colonial. So if we go to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, post-colonial is an adjective. Uh, says of, relating to, or being a time after colonialism. Right? Sort of an interesting uh, way to frame this poem. Obviously, you know, the United States, the ways in which uh, manifest destiny, which is the idea that, you know, that white people should move from the East Coast, essentially to the West Coast, sea to shining sea, that idea, uh, was sort of the idea that propagated a lot of genocide within the 17th, 18th, and 19th, early, argued 20th century too. Um, but also post-colonial, you could argue, is this, it is this contemporary era the way in which the brown body moves through the body politic of the contemporary, like, American fabric, right? And we see that all throughout this poem, right? We are living in the post-colonial. We take the first lines. I've been taught bloodstone can cure a snake bite, can stop the bleeding. Most people forgot this when the war ended. The war ended. Of course, the bloodstone has connotations of war i'm i'm reading this this is no this 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 thing i'm reading something from crystalvaults.com which is interesting uh bloodstone is is essentially the type of rock called a heliotrope um but it has this interesting little history on it which i find i've checked it out it's valid it's a real thing but the website just looks so wonky uh but this is for what it's worth i've, I've checked this out this is real in the ancient world, bloodstone heliotrope was considered to be the most beautiful of the jaspers, a deep earthy green gem emboldened with spots of bright red called the sunstone and later Christstone. Its energy carries the purity of blood and inherently speaks of life and birth, vitality and strength, passion and courage. As a talisman, it is both mystical and magical and its virtues are protective and nurturing. 
The most widely known legend of this stone comes from the Middle Ages and claims the bloodstone was formed at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ when the blood of his wounds fell onto the dark green earth and turned to stone, right? If you look at it sort of like uses and purpose, um, I find this really interesting. Wear or carry bloodstone as an amulet or protection against threats or bullying, whether verbal or physical, and for guiding to withdraw when appropriate and in and the courage to confront when needed. Sew a small bloodstone in the coat of a child or teenager who is being bullied. Carry one for strength when adjusting to new circumstances. Uh, so the bloodstone, you can think of this in sort of a post-colonial lens, and it's like this, especially in the context of bullying or war or um, sort of uh, protection. Uh, this is kind of like, you know, the way in which Natalie Diaz uses it, right? Um, the bloodstones can cure a snake bite, can stop the bleeding, right? Um, it's, there's an inference in, in this poem, and, and I find it really interesting that it's the first motion of the entire book. It's the first motion of the first poem, and then really that first poem is in the first chunk of the book, that this is going to be a book about not only what it means to try to heal, but what it means to sort of have or to work through hurt, right, in the historical resonances or the echoes of hurt, Uh and I find it interesting as the bloodstone is sort of like the first predominant symbol that we get. When we read through this poem, and I think it is a kind of poem, it's a little bit dense. Uh, it's dealing with quite a bit of language. I'm just scanning down the thing. I'm thinking of the things I had to look up. The bloodstone was one of them. Um, the geodes, a hot feldspar. What is feldspar, right? Um, quartz light. Uh, the hundred-year flood, November sky, right? Um, we, we, we kind of maybe have some sort of ideas or it has echoes in our own mind, but the ways in which those echoes are sort of resonating with each other are, are really interesting to me, especially in this concept, in the context of something like uh, post-colonialism or that idea of post-colonialism. You, you'll notice that she has quite a bit, sorry, I moved away from the mic, moved away from the mic to breathe a little bit. Do you guys know that meme? Anyway. <laughs> anyway, you'll notice throughout this poem that she has a lot of uh, like stone imagery or imagery that um, brings up sort of like minerals, uh, rocks, in uh, the rocks and those properties. We talked earlier about the bloodstone, um, but she also talks about cabochon. What is cabochon, right? A cabochon, if you're not familiar, is a rock that whenever you had like an opaque rock that wasn't worth you know, making multifaceted, right? The only reason you make a rock kind of multifaceted is, you know, like a, like a diamond or something is so you can add fire to it. So you can add some sort of uh, brilliance to the diamond. It'll shine a little bit brighter. But opaque stones, stones that are kind of cloudy inside, you made them round. A lot of times uh, there was a French technique in which they would make those stones round. So she invokes the cabotron. Uh, she invokes feldspar, <coughs> which is a kind of rock that was used for ceramic making sometimes, but construction a lot of other times. Uh, she talks about quartz. But really, right off the bat, we get this this line, right, uh, in which we sort of dovetail from that first mineral that she brings in, bloodstone. Depending on which war you mean, those we started before this millennia, millennia ago and onward, those which started me, which I lost and won, Right? So she's talking about this in the context of the snake bite, in the context of bloodstones, which, you know, these things, these, these rocks, these minerals, especially, she says, you know, I've been taught bloodstones can cure a snake bite, can stop bleeding. Most people forgot this. 
she's talking about sort of knowledge that's been passed down generation to generation. Uh, and she's talking about these old wars. She's like the ones that we started millennia ago. Perhaps she's invoking these sort of like intertribal conflicts or the ways in which uh, indigeneity was um, incredibly complex. It, it was it was more complex than just this sort of one umbrella term of indigenous, right? Which meant all indigenous people. She said we were different peoples. And then she has this other line saying, and those which started me, which I lost and won, right? And what she's talking about, you know, it's not like that one and lost, but she's talking about sort of like the indigenous people who have been sort of uh, stymied or who've been, uh, for quite frankly, victims of genocide, right? We think of the Trail of Tears. Uh, we think of this march westward toward, you know, Sea to Shining Sea, that manifest destiny that I invoked earlier, and the ways in which a lot of indigenous people were wiped out. But, you know, it's one war to lose, but then to be reborn from that or to be sort of like um, a product of those wars, um, you know, in, in, in a way, in having survived, you almost win it again. Um, and this is where the pun of wage comes in. We go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight lines down. And she says, I was built by wage. So I wage love and worse, right? Do you wage love? No, you wage war, right? War is uh, one of those uh, things that she's invoking here, but it's sort of like it's inferred, right? It's not exactly on the surface, but just the term wage, you know, I waged love. And from here we get this, the rest of this poem is this sort of like love story, this complicated um, way in which maybe uh, our persona, the persona of, of a poem just means the protagonist of the poem, the main character of the poem. The way in which this persona loves, and she talks about this complex uh, relationship with someone who she loves, and that's but it's contextualized by colonialism, by the echoes of history in her own life, right? And it's interesting. I, I don't want to get too far off the beat here, but she talks about wage in the context of, um, or it's like it's like itself a pun, right? So you wage war, but what else is a wage, right? It is a wage. It's something you earn, right? So she says, "I was built by wage." I was built by this desire for money, this manifest destiny, this moving from east to west. So I wage love and worse, right? What's worse than love, right? That's like, it's sort of a jaded view, but it's a kind of this, it's a, it's a nice keyhole into sort of what she's thinking of. Always another campaign to march across, a desert night for the cannon flash of your pale skin, settling in a silver lagoon of smoke at your breast, right? She's talking about, when we talk about campaigns of love, are those campaigns of love at all or are they just sort of like conquests right we always talk about misogyny and we talk about uh sort of um uh, even talk about tropes of like rape culture is sort of like conquests right you can conquer someone or you conquer someone else and she's talking about it in these very warlike terms right um always another campaign to march across desert night for the cannon flash of your pale skin she brings in race here Right? She's talking about pale skin, she's talking about white skin, and she's talking about sort of these campaigns, the sort of like, also sort of these shadow, um, I don't know, inferences of almost like a, like a, a conflicted uh, hybridity. She knows she's a product of conquest, but she also loves um, the oppressor in some ways, right? This, she talks about this pale skin, which is sort of like the idea, the white supremacist you know, ideology of going from sea to shining sea, you know, manifest destiny. Um, so she's not saying that her lover's vice premises. I want to be clear about that. But she's invoking that idea in this sort of fraught relationship and the, you know, the fraught history in the way it's manifesting in her own body. 
I dismount my dark horse, bend to you there, deliver you the hard pool of all my thirst. I learn to drink in a country of drought. We pleasure to hurt, leave marks the size of stones, each a chabacon polished by our mouths. I, your lapidary, your lapidary wheel, turning, green mottled red, the jaspers of our desires. There are wildflowers in my desert, which take up twenty years to bloom. The seeds sleep like geodes beneath hot feldspar sand, until a flash floods, bolts the arroyo, lifting them in its copper current, opens them with memory. They remember what their god whispered into the ribs. Wake up and ache for your life. Right? So we get that sort of like, we talked earlier about the sort of like that, that Christ stone, the, uh, what is it called? The bloodstone, right? Earlier, we get that image here again. Wake up and ache for your life. Where your hands have been our diamonds on my shoulders, down my back, thighs. I am your culebra. What is a culebra? In Spanish, a, a culebra can mean a snake, but it can also mean debt. You're indebted to somebody, right? But again, we get the stone imagery, the diamonds going down someone's back, right? She says, you know, a diamond is the most hard stone in the world. It's the hardest. Um, it's like of, of the most scale of whatever of hardness. It's like the hardest. Um, but we think of that not as a pleasant feeling, but as like this sort of like clawing, this almost like this ripping of the skin. Um, and we get that earlier invoked was to wake up and ache for your life. I am in the dirt for you. Your hips are quartz light and dangerous. Two rose horns rand ascending a soft desert wash before the November sky untethers a hundred year flood. The desert returns suddenly to its ancient sea. Arise the wild heliotrope. What is heliotrope, right? A heliotrope is a kind of flower, right? Um, she talks about uh, scorpions and heliotropes. Heliotrope is a genus of flowering plants in the barrage family, Borogenesia. There are around 325 species in this almost cosmopolitan genus, which are commonly known as heliotropes. It is highly toxic for dogs and cats. Don't feed your dogs and cats heliotrope, right? But the desert turned suddenly to its ancient sea. Arise the wild heliotrope. Scorpion weeds. Blue phacelia. What is phacelia? A phacelia is a genus of about 200 species of annual or perennial herbaceous plants, right? Herbs uh, native to North and South America. The genus is traditionally placed at family rank with the water leaves in the order of Borreginales. Uh, whatever the fuck that means, right? If you look at a phacelia and you look at um, a heliotrope, they're both purple plants, right? And they both have this kind of like very similar blooming quality to them. The facelia is a little bit smaller. Um, the heliotrope is a little bit more lush, right? But she's talking about the blue facelia with hold, which hold purple the way a throat can hold the shape of any great hand, right? Is that a pleasant image or is that a not pleasant image? Think of that. It can hold purple the way a throat can hold the shape of any great hand. Right? That's a fucking hand around a throat, or at worst, a hand inside a throat, which is a very violent image, right? And if you think of it, it's interesting, too, that I even use the word violent, violent, big violence. I'm conflating violent and violence, and I think that's actually um, uh, Natalie Diaz's sort of entire intent here. She's invoking sort of the images of purple, images of bruising, images of violet, images of violence uh, with each other and with this lover, right? Um, and she says... Uh, great hands is what she called mine. The rain will eventually come or not. 
Until then, we touch our bodies like wounds. The war never ended and somehow begins again. Right. She's talking about sort of working through the echoes of the past in the contemporary relationships that she's trying to use to move forward. And so from here, we have the launching point of uh, the rest of these poems, which are essentially poems about what it means to be a product of one's history, what does it mean to be a product of uh, one's personal circumstances, and the way in which one's personal circumstances are kind of like an extension of history, right? All right. That little tap rhythm means we're moving on to our next poem. Uh, I want to skip over to um, Bloodlight, uh, which is kind of cool. Uh, first line. My brother has a knife in his hand. All right, fuck. <laughs> Gotta read this poem, right? My brother has a knife in his hand. My brother has a knife in his hand. He has decided to stab my father. This could be a story from the Bible. If it wasn't already a story about stars. I weep alacranes. The scorpions clatter to the floor like yellow metallic scissors. They land upside down on their backs and eyes but writhe and flip to their segmented bellies. My brother has forgotten to wear shoes again. My scorpions circle him, whip at the, his heels. In them is what stings in me. It brings my brother to the ground. He rises, still holding the knife. My father ran out of the house, down the street, crying like a lamplighter, but nobody turned their lights on. It is dark. The only light left is in the scorpions. There is a small light left in the knife, too. My brother now wants to give me the knife. Some might say my brother wants to stab me. He tries to pass it to me like it is a good thing, like... Don't you want a little light in your belly? Like the way Orion and Scorpius across all that black night past the sun. My brother loosens his mouth between his teeth, throbbing red, red ant hairs. One way to open a body to the stars with a knife. One way to love a sister, help her bleed light. Right. So the predominant image of this uh, poem is, is really light. But also this this legend, this myth of legend, uh, rather, of Scorpius and Orion, which are two constellations in the sky. When the world was new, the great hunter and giant Orion was feared by all the beasts. He slew many great beasts of the land and sea. None succeeded in staying his arrow. In a fit of arrogance, he proclaimed to the heavens that he would not rest until he succeeded in killing all the wild animals of the earth. His insolence angered Gaia. Goddess of the earth and mother of the titans, she sought the help of a lone scorpion and asked him to slay the giant. Initially, Orion was not afraid of the creature. How could one so small ever dare to challenge his might? Yet challenged he was. No matter how hard he tried, Orion could not defeat the scorpion. It dodged of his arrows and all shots fired from his bows. Panicked, Orion decided to flee. And that is what when the scorpion took its chance. Orion was stung when the scorpion's poisonous tail, and Orion, the great hunter, was himself hunted and slain. Gaia, in eternal gratitude to the scorpion, ensured that his success and Orion's shame would forever be marked for all to see. The image of the scorpion was placed in the night sky, with Orion's image next to it. As the stars move, it will always look as though the scorpion is chasing Orion. Uh, this is the same Orion from, like, Men in Black fame, you know, like Orion's belt. Uh, you can see Orion's belt connected to the two shoulder blades and the head, and then from the shoulder blades, the shield and, and the sword. Uh, 
and then you can see uh, the scorpion, which is sort of like, just like a long, it looks like a giant S in the sky. But anyways, real constellation, based on a real constellation. But we get that imagery everywhere, right? Uh, this persona, the protagonist of the poem, is obviously invoking this in the bottom of page five. She says, like the way Orion and Scorpius uh, across all that black night, right? This image of fighting, and she's, she's weeping alacranes, you know, alacranes are scorpions. Um, and she says, in them is what stings in me. And so she has a combination of sorrow that's really connected uh, to his, that sorrow and anger, right, at the same time, that it once is sort of a manifestation of history, something that we explore in the first poem, but also is sort of an echo of what she sees in her brother. And so this idea of the echo sort of resonates throughout this collection, not only within sort of the way in which it's uh, historicity, but the way in which it manifests in the interpersonal. We got that with in the first poem with um, our persona and uh, her lover, and we get it here now with her brother who, you know, at once she's enraged by him, but she's also sort of like, uh, you know, working through this his pain and, and the echoes of his pain and the, and the, and the fact that, like, uh, really his pain, like hers, is a manifestation of history. At the bottom of page six, or top of page six, rather, she says, my brother loosens his mouth between his teeth, throbbing red ant hairs, right? This color red uh, has echoes throughout the book, and I, I, we're going to look at it in the poem uh, Catching Copper in just a second, which is another brother poem. Uh, but she says, uh, my brother uh, loosens his mouth between his teeth, red ant hairs, throbbing red ant hairs. What is ant hairs? Not ant hairs, like H-A-I-R-S, ant hairs, A-N-T-A-R-E-S, antares, right? The 15th brightest star, really a sun uh, in the galaxy, right? In the solar system. Um... I wanna I wanna take a second to talk about uh, uh, catching copper. Um, I was supposed to talk about five poems, but my recording is kind of busting down on me, and I kind of want to not take chances with it. Um, I'm gonna do catching copper, and then I think I'm gonna do American arithmetic, and maybe we might save. Uh, they don't love you like I loved you till next time, right? Catching copper. My brothers have a bullet. They keep their bullet on a leash shiny as a whip of blood. I stopped there because um, actually this was really interesting to me. Um, she talks about her brother as they, uh, which is sort of a gender neutral term. Um, and so I'm sort of thinking the way that which was might resonate throughout the poem, but uh, indigeneity, hybridity, uh, historicity, I'm thinking along these lines, right? Sorry, catching copper. My brothers have a bullet. Okay, so it's brothers plural. I missed that. My brothers have a bullet. They keep their bullet on a leash shiny as a whip of blood. My brothers walk with their bullet, with a limp, a clipped hip bone. My brother's bullet is a math head, is all geometry. From a distance is just a bee and its sting. Like a bee, you should see my brother's bullet make a comb by chewing holes in what is sweet. My brothers lose their bullet all the time. Then their bullet takes off on them. Their bullet leaves a hole. My brothers search their houses, their bodies for their bullet. And a little red ghost moans. Eventually, my brothers call out, Here, bullet, here. Their bullet comes running, buzzing. Their bullet always comes back to them. When their bullet comes back to them, their bullet leaves a hole. My brothers are too slow for their bullet because their bullet is in a hurry and wants to get the lead out. My brother's bullet is dressed for a red carpet and a copper jacket. My brothers tell their bullet, Careful, you don't hurt somebody with all that flash. My brother's bullet 
kiss their bullet in a dark cul-de-sac in front of the corner store ice machine in the passenger seat of their car on a strobe lighted dance floor my brother's bullet kisses them back my brother's bullet break and dance for their bullet my brother's break and dance for their bullet rather the jerk the stanky leg they pop lock and drop for their bullet a move that has them writhing on the ground the worm my brothers call it my brothers go all worm for their bullet my brother's bullet is registered is a bullet of letters has a pd a cib a gsw if they are lucky an emt if not a triple nine a dnr a doa my brother never calls my brothers never call the cops on their bullet and instead pledge allegiance to their bullet with hands over their hearts and stomachs and throats my brothers say they would die for their bullet if my brothers die their bullet would be lost if my brothers die there's no bullet to begin with the bullet is for living brothers my brothers feed their bullet the way bulls feed zeus burning on a pyre their own thigh bones wrapped in fat my brothers take a knee bow against the asphalt prostrate on the concrete for their bullet we wouldn't go so far as to call our bullet a prophet my brothers say but my bullet brother my brother's bullet is always lit like a night church it makes my brothers holy you could say my brother's bullet cleans them the way red ants wash the empty white bowl of a dead coyote's eye socket yes my brother's bullet cleans them makes them ready for god wow that second to last image right um it always uh, now where's that you could say my brother's bullet cleans them the way red ants wash the empty white bowl of a dead coyote's eye socket fuck what an image um what is that poem about i mean for me sorry you guys can hear me my uh <laughs> wife is sort of talking on the phone in the other uh room so much of this light and so much of this sort of like um plurality of sort of brothers uh you know it's funny because I, I instantly thought of like hybridity uh right off the bat sorry i'm just adjusting the mic real quick um and there is a concept that we talked about briefly uh, in class called Two-Spirit, um, which is sort of like the indigenous person split into, um, you know, a feminine and masculine energy. Um, but I wonder in which way, you know, uh, Natalie Diaz is thinking of hybridity along the terms of sort of like cultural hybridity, um, being both brown or indigenous and white and colonized at the same time, especially in the, in the, in the sort of valence of... Uh, or in the, in the context of post-colonialism, she uses the, the one thing for me, this is like the center of the poem, is that stanza on the bottom of page 10, my brother's bullet is registered, is a bullet of letters, has a PD, a CIB, a GSW, if they are lucky, an EMT, if not a triple nine, a DNR, a DOA, you know, DNR is do not resuscitate, a DOA is dead on arrival, but even the triple nine, uh, some of you guys may not know, but the triple nine is, um, was when they drafted someone. If you had a low known draft number, uh, you were obviously drafted first. If you had a high one, like triple nine, you know, you were drafted last. And so she has all this like sort of government sort of double speak. And to this end, I wonder if so much of this poem is is about even as you're contesting colonialism, like what does it mean to actually contest colonialism or to live or to be post-colonial? Um, can you ever separate the colonized part of yourself from yourself and to that end there's this question which i think is like can you ever move beyond 
the trauma that's been sewed into the historicity of yourself, right? There was something we saw interrogated quite a bit in Marcelo Hernandez Castillo's uh, Children of the Land. Uh, and then, uh, you know, before that in Cabeza de Vaca even, you know, sort of talking about the origins of trauma and what does it mean? What is the significance of trauma uh, to sort of like a colonized people? Uh, and he was always thinking of that along the terms, in, in along the lines of like, when we do colonize these people, what is your utility to sort of God? Or, or He kind of knew that they were forever going to be changed. And this is sort of Natalie Diaz saying, you know, it is true that we are, you know, changed. There is a sort of hybridity sort of speak. There's a sort of coded way in which we navigate the world. Um, but uh, to this end, there's a fundamental question, which is like, can you... Is reacting to colonialism and reacting to the violence that has been done to you, does that make you a non... Is even the reaction to, against it a form of colonization, if that makes any sense? Like, if you are conscious of what it means to be colonized, does that further colonize you? And is it sort of a catch-22? Can you ever sort of get out of that rabbit hole? Uh, does the historicity of it is it also a kind of chain? You know, we think of it as a sort of as liberation. Knowledge is liberation or knowledge is power. But can it be sort of a chain that sort of like um, ties you down, that boxes you in, that makes you feel like, you know, there are only two possibilities of you, you know, the two brothers, this hybridity. And then we get to the very end of this poem. And she says, we wouldn't go so far as to call our bullet a prophet, my brothers say, but my brother's bullet is always like a night church. It makes my brothers holy. You could say my brother's bullet cleans them, the way red ants wash the empty white bowl of a dead coyote's eye socket. Right? We get that image of death, sort of like one bean dying out, or sort of this image of the land, right? Or the image of sort of organic, or the image of something, uh, you could even say it's sort of like symbolic of indigeneity. Yes, my brother's bullet cleans them, makes them ready for God, right? And I keep thinking about that in the context of like, you know, Cabeza de Vaca, where he says, you know, these, you know, you should be kind to these specific people. And he's talking about the Guadalupecans. And he's saying, because, you know, they would make good, uh, you know, soldiers of God, or they would make good uh, followers of the Catholic Church. And to this end, like, I think it's really interesting that she's paralleling, you know, God with historicity, with bullets, right? Which in this poem becomes like a metaphor for the country or becomes a metaphor for sort of like oppression. There's a saying, um, you know, the West was one with a Bible and a gun, right? And I think she's invoking that phrase here quite a bit or the idea or the spirit of that phrase. And so uh, I think, you know, for moving, you know, moving on, you know, I, I think uh, this poem is, is, is all about the ways in which maybe it is less violent um, to succumb to the gaze of the colonists than it might be to like, I don't know, to contest it, right? Uh, I'm not sure she has a clear answer whether one is right or wrong, but I think she finds herself on one side of the equation and she finds her brother quite evenly split. He buys out of the country, but he also buys into it quite a bit, you know? Anyways, a really elegant poem. Kind of a poem that brings in quite a few ideas that we've been talking about in class and I think triangulates them quite a bit. All right, so let's move on to our last one, which is American Arithmetic. Right before that, we wanted to talk about, or in the beginning of the class, I talked about 
Um, they don't love you like I love you, but I actually want to save that till next time. My equipment's kind of breaking down, so I just want to get this on tape. I like this one because it sort of ties together everything we talked about today, uh, and I think it's a nice segue into the rest of the book. Um, I'll just go ahead and read it. American Arithmetic. Native Americans make up less than 1% of the population of America. 0.8% of 100%. Oh, mine efficient country. I do not remember the days before America. I do not remember the days when we were all here. Police kill Native Americans more than any other race. Race is a funny word. Race implies someone will win. Implies I have a good, as good a chance of winning as... Who wins the race that isn't a race? Native Americans make up 1.9% of all police killings, higher per capita than any race. Sometimes race means run. I'm not good at math. Can you blame me? I've had an American education. We are Americans, and we are less than 1% of Americans. We do a better job of dying by police than we do existing. When we are dying, who should we call? The police or our senator? Please, someone call my mother. At the National Museum of the American Indian, 68% of the collection is from the United States. I'm doing my best to not become a museum of myself. I am doing my best to breathe in and out. I am begging. Let me be lonely but not invisible. Be an American room of 100 people. I am Native American, less than one, less than one, less than whole. I am less than myself, only a fraction of a body. Let's say I am only a hand. And when I slip it beneath the shirt of my lover, I disappear completely. Right. I feel like this poem ties together so well, like so many of the ideas that we've been talking about today, uh, not only sort of hybridity, uh, not only sort of like state violence or violence perpetuated by the state uh, and sort of the roots of that in historicity, but also this idea that, um, you know, what is, there's a trauma essentially when you are remembered as, or when you were trying to remember yourself in contestation of the state, even as you sort of uh, go against the state or say that that is not me or call in it, colonialism is not me or that I'm against colonialism, you're very sort of... Uh, reaction to that and your opposition to it um, makes you almost dehumanize yourself in that you don't recognize the historicity of who you are, right? And I think this is something that Natalie Diaz um, struggles with quite a bit, but she's seen the fallout of it in, and she's trying to use that as a lens through which she might view the, the trauma of her family and the way in which the trauma is like a fallout of these deeper echoes. Um, but I like this poem because it's a it's a prose poem. It's, it's really accessible. It's obviously split up in the stanzas, right? These stanzas that sometimes can, you know, they're, they're, they're little bits of three and then they um, they hit into sort of like their own little line, like, oh, my efficient country. Who wins the race that isn't a race? Sometimes race means run, right? I'm interested in the way those lines sort of um, speak almost with each other. Um, but, you know, this she's at once, I mean, thinking about how much, so much of American colonial history is kind of bullshit, like race, you know, the concept of race is a human construct. Uh, and she's like, you know, what does it mean? Who wins, right? Um, what does it mean to be sort of like a, a fraction of a person? Um, you know, these things that are sort of nonsensical, but then when you look at them harder, they actually have some truth in the sort of trauma of, and the way in which it's been internalized in the native body. So I think it's really, it's uh, it's kind of an interesting uh I don't know, examination 
of uh, indigeneity in its cross section with, uh, you know, Chicanoness or Mexican Americanness, um, with which is also sort of a manifestation of of you know the country at large, right? And we can talk about this in the context of it being like a true American literature, right? A product of the history of this country. Um, cool. I think this book is kind of interesting because it's you know it's timely. Um, not only as we move forward, we talk about the closing of the borders uh, with Canada and Mexico in wake of the sort of COVID-19 thing, uh, but the way which we're talking about the militarization increasingly of, of the state um, with concern to sort of like, you know, ICE deportations are continuing to go on, even, you know, and they have those N95 masks, even though they're not supposed to, you know, they're supposed to give those to doctors and stuff like that. Um, but, you know... I think what Natalie Diaz is working through is the way in which state mythologies and ideologies can even be sometimes a way through which you might interrogate the pathology of 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 the self, the colonized self. Yeah, um, and so it's 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 a pretty interesting read. Uh, for next time, let's go ahead and read. Um, let's go ahead and read. Uh, they don't love you like I love you, and then. The entire second section, uh, which starts, let me see if I can get to the table of contents, um, which starts um, on page 27 and ends in 46. So let's go ahead and do that, page 27 to 46 for next time. Obviously, if you haven't read all of the poems within the first section, go ahead and do that. Uh, and then uh, I'll put up a quick prompt for you guys in Blackboard um, and... Uh, and feel free to respond to that in lieu of sort of discussion uh, in class. Um, I just want to say, ending out the class, that, um, you know, my heart goes out to all you guys. I know this is sort of a scary time. Uh, I know this is a kind of possibly a very trying experience in the ways in which you're navigating this with your families, uh, with food scarcity, with, um, you know, money, perhaps. Uh, and I just want to let you know that um, the University of Houston downtown has a resource page. Uh, if you go to the main page, let me see if I can find it real quick, actually. I'll go through it with you. Uh, uhd.edu. It should be right there at the front of the page. Um, right there. It says COVID-19 update. University of Houston downtown classes are uh, um, moving online, which is why we're doing this. But they have a uhd.edu slash coronavirus. And you click on there, and it has a list of updates. Um, but it also has uh, quite a few resources. Uh, it talks about commencement, talks about uh, prevention. Uh, but feel free to go ahead and, and, and look at that page. Uh, they have a tab that says Coronavirus Resources. And it says for Harris County residents, Harris Health System for the city of Houston, for Fort Bend County. Uh, and it talks about those, um, those things. Um, yes, I'm trying to look at any other resources you might know. Um, if you have any questions, uh, concerns, or uh, gripes <laughs> about the class, feel free to um, to get at me at penyad at uhd.edu. Obviously, office hours are not going to be held, uh, you know, for the rest of the semester um, due to the COVID-19 uh, outbreak. But um, the classes will very much remain alive online. So definitely engage with the discussion boards. Definitely listen to the podcast and see what you can get from them. And... Um, you know, this stuff is crazy. This stuff is bananas. And I just wish you guys a lot of luck. I wish you guys a lot of health. And um, definitely stay inside. Yeah? Wash your hands. Wash your hands!
get toilet paper. All right, guys, you take it easy. I will see you on Thursday. Dig it. Bye.